Welcome to this week's podcast of Bergen Park Church from Evergreen, Colorado. We hope you enjoy this message, and if you'd like to hear any more or learn more about the church, please visit bergenparkchurch.org. Now, I got to tell you guys, I, I enjoy a little bit of irony every now and then. I, I think it's funny. Um, the winner of a spelling bee who received a trophy that misspelled the word spelling. I don't know if you remember reading about that one. Or the leader of an anti-Semitic political party in Hungary who found out he was Jewish. Uh, So it happens. Yeah, irony is all around us. I can't help but smirk with a little bit of satisfaction when violence breaks out among participants at a peace rally. Or when people get banned from an all-you-can-eat buffet for eating too much. I find it ever so slightly amusing, and this one's going to offend a few people, but I find it kind of funny when vegetarians crave meat-flavored vegetable burgers. The reality is, uh, irony is everywhere, and and it is funny, but it can have a solemn and even portentous side uh, to it. How often do we stop to think about or really appreciate the irony of the cross of Jesus Christ? How often do we stop to consider that the good shepherd actually became the sacrificial lamb, that the prince of peace was violently crucified, that the king of heaven humbled himself and took on the nature of a servant, that a sinless man was crucified, punished for the sin of the world? that the conqueror of sin and death rode into Jerusalem at Passover as a humble and gentle king. And perhaps nowhere else in Scripture do we see greater irony than in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, where Jesus promises us a burden that will actually restore us. He promises us a weight that will actually lift us. So by his work, by his toil, we are given rest. On this Palm Sunday, I want us to take some time to really ponder this irony of the cross of Jesus Christ. So as I mentioned, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 11. I want to focus on verses 28 through 30. But to give us a little bit of context, we're going to back up to verse 25 and begin reading there. So Matthew 11, 25... Through 30. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this word that you have revealed to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
And we ask that you would walk with us in this study this morning, that you would give us insight into the meaning of this text, that we would come to understand the humble and lowly nature of Jesus, his mercy and his compassion for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, we need to understand that the verses uh, we just read here in, in Matthew are unique to Matthew's gospel. You're not going to find this particular account in the synoptics in Mark or Luke, nor in uh, the book of John. And there are likely a number of reasons for that. Um, but I think most importantly, we need to understand that Matthew here emphasizes these words of Jesus because they fit quite well into one of the major themes of the book of Matthew. And that's a theme that we see come out through the Sermon on the Mount that we've studied quite a bit over the last year. So what we see in the Sermon on the Mount and what we see throughout the book of Matthew is that salvation belongs to, well, to the meek. Salvation belongs to the humble of heart, to those who are poor in spirit, to those who recognize that by God's grace they are saved. They cannot save themselves. So throughout Matthew's account of the life of Jesus, we see that hope for sinners and sufferers is given by God's grace alone. Jesus reveals the Father, not to the wise and learned, but to the lowly, to those who are humble, to the weary, to those who are burdened. His invitation is not to the self-sufficient, nor to the arrogant who strive to attain righteousness by their own effort, but rather he reveals himself to little children, those who bring absolutely nothing but themselves to the Father. So what I want to reinforce here is that the work of Jesus leads to our rest. The burden of Jesus' yoke is actually our blessing. The humility and lowliness of Jesus is what makes him our great and perfect king. This is the irony of the cross. Now understand that the rest that Jesus offers us is in many ways rest for today, but it's more than that. It's a, it's a kind of eschatological rest, and simply what, what that means is it's a future rest. It's an eternal Sabbath rest in the comforting presence of the Heavenly Father. Now, my concern is that we sometimes undervalue the magnitude and scope of the kind of rest that Jesus is offering us. See, he's not telling us that he wants to simply give us temporary feelings of emotional well-being when we feel overwhelmed by the, the burdens of life. And, and that's certainly part of it. We, we don't need to undermine that reality necessarily, but, but, but it's more. It's more than that. See, this isn't just a little bit of grace to offer us temporary respite from the burdens of life. This isn't just a day off at the end of a busy week before going right back into it again on Monday. So he's telling us that he's offering us eternal freedom from the effects of our vain striving after self-righteous glory. Eternal rest. And why do we need this rest? Why do we need this grace? Well, because Jesus knows that we have been placed under a very heavy yoke. Now, that yoke may come from pressures around us, from others in the church who, who pressure us to live in legalistic self-righteousness in order to please God. It might come from our own self-induced feelings of inadequacy in the presence of God, 
feelings that lead us to think that we're never good enough for him. It might come from external circumstances, pain, suffering, anxiety, and the like. But either way, this is what's at stake. When we work hard at making God love us, we end up only frustrating ourselves. When we work hard at trying to relieve our problems by our own power, we end up oftentimes frustrating ourselves. It's kind of like trying to attain the speed of light. If you've ever given some thought to Einstein's theory of general relativity, this idea that the faster an object moves, the more its mass increases, right? And, and the more its, its length contracts until the object reaches infinite mass and zero length, right? It's impossible. That's why we can't send an object at the speed of light. And in the same way, the harder we strive, the heavier our yoke becomes, the more constricted our faith becomes, right? The harder we strive, the more we are encumbered by this infinite mass of the law, this infinite mass of, of self-righteousness, and then our dependency on God shrinks away to nothing. This is where the irony of the cross is needed. He who knew no sin became sin for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21. So in his compassion, Jesus does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And this is really what lies at the heart of Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. So as we ponder this, this concept, this irony of the cross, there are two points I want to draw our attention to this morning. First, Jesus' burden is our benefit. His burden is our benefit. Secondly, his humility is our hope. First point. The burden Jesus lays on us is to our benefit. Now, when we talk about the yoke uh, here in, in verses 29 and 30, what we're talking about is this heavy wooden beam that essentially would have been laid across the shoulders or back of uh, oxen, uh, some sort of uh, beast of, of burden, and then attached to a heavy wooden cart that would have then been pulled by these oxen. So when we talk about the yoke of Jesus, we have to understand what this means in the, the context of Matthew 11, that we're contrasting the yoke of Jesus with the yoke of the Pharisees. These were the experts in the Jewish law, the religious law at the time. Now, the yoke of the Pharisees was a yoke of legalism, a damning obsession with the letter of the law that failed to understand the purpose of the law and failed to love the giver of the law. Now, it's critical to understand this because it helps us correctly situate Jesus' teaching. You see, Jesus isn't throwing off the law. He's trying to help us understand its true intent. And if you go back to Matthew chapter 5, to the Sermon on the Mount, uh, chapter 5, verses 17 through 20, what does Jesus say? He says, I've not come to abolish the law nor the prophets. No, I've not come to abolish them. I've come to fulfill them. He came to fulfill the teachings of Scripture. So he doesn't remove the yoke so much as he gives us a different yoke, a yoke of grace. And here's the thing, you know, I think it's really easy for us to want to pick on the Pharisees. We like to go after the Pharisees for putting a heavy burden of law on the people. But the reality is, oftentimes, we are our own Pharisees. We put a burden of law on ourselves. We put plenty of pressure 
on ourselves. How many of us think that God can't love us until we get our life in order, for example? How many of us live in the lie that I have to obey God in order to earn God's love rather than obeying God out of his love for us? How many of us think that we need to repay God somehow for what he's freely given us? Now, when Jesus tells us that his yoke is easy and his burden is light, he's telling us that the weight that is the glory of his love actually lifts us up. He's telling us that works-based salvation in which we flounder is really like quicksand. The more we struggle against it, the deeper we sink. The invitation of Jesus in verse 28, come to me, is an invitation not to do more, but to do less. I mean, think about it. Who's the object of this invitation? It's those who labor, those who are heavy laden, those who already bear a heavy load. When Jesus tells us that his yoke is easy and his burden is light, he's telling us to stop, to rest, to trust that in his compassion we will be lifted up. Now, it might surprise us a little bit in this passage that Jesus is even offering us a yoke in the first place. Why would he offer us an object that's typically, you know, this, this heavy wooden beam attached to a heavy wooden cart? And again, the idea here is a bit counterintuitive. Now, imagine, imagine that you are out hiking on a steep uh, mountain trail up in the high country somewhere. You're climbing a peak or climbing up to some uh, summit or ridge somewhere. You've already put on many miles, right? You, you have many miles to go to reach the summit. Your energy's already sapped. Your strength is spent. Your muscles are quivering and cramping with pain. You still have all this distance between you and, and your goal. And then suddenly you meet a man coming down the mountain who's carrying a large backpack, a, a big, cumbersome, bulking backpack. And he stops and he offers you the backpack to carry up the mountain, now, your inclination, of course, would be to, to decline, right? Why would you add more weight, more burden to what, uh, what you're already carrying? But imagine that the backpack actually contains some sort of, we'll just say some sort of helium technology, okay, that actually reduces your body weight by 90% and allows you to scramble effortlessly up to the top of the mountain. Now, clearly, this is an absurd kind of science fiction type of scenario, but it's akin to the kind of burden Jesus is, is offering, right? It's a weight that actually lifts us up. Or in an example offered by theologian Dane Ortland, imagine that you're drowning in a stormy sea. You're, you've been treading water. You're kicking against the, you know, the waves and, and water that's crashing down on top of you. Your strength is spent. Uh, these waves keep crashing over your head. But then imagine that, that a ship suddenly appears and the two crew members hoist an object over the side of the boat right on top of you. You're already struggling to stay afloat. The last thing you need is a copious, ponderous burden thrown down on top of you. Imagine, however, that what they've thrown at you is a life preserver, a flotation device. Now the burden becomes your savior, right? It's a weight that lifts you. Now understand that these scenarios are intended simply to demonstrate the kind of burden Jesus is offering us. The, the point is that the burden is a non-burden. The weight is a non-weight. Jesus gives us 
a life-giving grace. The yoke that Jesus offers sinners and sufferers is a grace that reflects the deepest mercies of God. Right? It, it, it's, it's a grace that allows us to endure the burdens of life under the care of our Lord, the Lord of, of mercy and compassion. So Jesus isn't just saying here that under his yoke, you'll be free of sin and free of, of pain and free of suffering in this life. Rather, he's giving us a yoke of his care, that he will walk with us in these difficult circumstances. The burden is our benefit. And most of you guys, I think, at this point, you, you know my story over the last few months, some of the stuff that my family has walked through, um, the big transitions and, and, and things that have gone on in, in our lives. Um, our family had to make the difficult, really painful decision a, a few months back to say goodbye to our home, to our life, to our ministry in France, and move back here to the States permanently to, to, to change our, our ministry, our life. At that same time, my wife Amy going through the diagnosis with the brain tumor, the surgery, now the radiation, all the stuff involving that. And, and many of you are walking through similar kinds of circumstances. I know there are people here with cancer, people suffering with chronic pain and disease, people who have lost jobs, people who are suffering. And none of us invite that stuff into our lives. We don't ask for that stuff. We don't ask for upheaval. We're not masochists here, are we? But in many ways, I can speak for myself, I wouldn't trade it. I wouldn't trade that pain. Because in our suffering, God exposes our need for complete dependency on him. Right? He allows us to walk beneath the yoke of his grace, of his compassion, of his mercy, to learn from him. Right? His burden is our benefit. Point number two. Jesus' humility is our hope. The gentleness, the lowliness of Jesus is a reflection of the sympathy, the compassion, and the mercy that God has for sinners and for sufferers. And we need to pause and, and really reflect on this for, I think, a few minutes. And let me repeat what I just said here. The gentleness and the lowliness of Jesus is a reflection of the sympathy, the compassion, and the mercy of God for sinners and sufferers. The reason we need to dwell on this is I think that often we take God's compassion and his mercy for granted. And the reason we take it for granted is because we fail to see that his compassion and his mercy is rooted in who he is. So human beings don't necessarily operate this way. Usually we need a little bit of provocation in order to show some mercy, some compassion. It's not necessarily who we always are. Now, some of us are more inclined to it than others. You know, it's easy for me to have compassion on my own children. It's harder for me to have compassion on people a world away that I don't even know. God is not like this, however. Verse 29 doesn't say that Jesus needs some convincing before he's able to exhibit gentleness and, and lowliness and, and mercy. It doesn't say that if Jesus had more time, he might be able to meet the needs of, uh, of more, more burdened people. No, the mercy and the care that Jesus exhibits is a reflection of his very essence of who he is. Now understand that Jesus is truly God and thus possesses the fullness of the attributes and the perfections 
of God, including his gentleness and his merciful compassion. There's nothing that Jesus is in his divine nature that the Father and the Spirit are not. And there's nothing that the Father and the Spirit are that Jesus is not. The attributes and perfections of God dwell fully in Jesus Christ. He doesn't need a reason to be gentle. He doesn't need a reason to love. His compassionate heart is not conditioned by something that I've done. It's not reactive, if if that makes sense. Nothing we do adds anything to who God is. This is simply who God is. Now, that's hard to, to understand, I think, for us because humans aren't that way. Right? We spend our entire lives adding to who we are, changing who we are, growing, changing in different ways. We do things to make ourselves more or less attractive. We do our hair, we do makeup, we do Botox, we do the stuff to you know, try to stay young and try to stay attractive. We do things to make ourselves more or less physically fit. Some will let themselves go, others will strive their entire life to try to achieve some sort of physical fitness. We sometimes attempt to improve our knowledge or to improve our morality or to improve other things about us. We're under this constant state of flux. From the time we're born to the time we die, we're undergoing constant change. God is not this way. The doctrine of divine immutability tells us from Scripture that God does not change in any intrinsic way. He does not change like shifting shadows. The doctrine of divine simplicity tells us from Scripture that God is not composed of parts that can be added to or subtracted from. Now, this is not just theological poppycock, okay? This is not theological silliness here. What this means is that God loves you because that's the kind of God he is. That's why theology matters. This is who God is. Now, because this is the kind of God he is, the invitation in verse 28, come to me, makes some sense, right? It means something more than we could ever imagine. These are not empty words. To the reprobate, to those who reject him, his righteous wrath is justly administered. And that righteous wrath will bring glory to his divine perfections. And if you don't believe me about God's wrath, read verses 20 through 24 of Matthew 11. We've just come out of uh, this judgment that God shows against those who have rejected him. But to the sinner whom he has called to himself, the fullness of his mercy will be revealed. Those who by the grace of God have humbled themselves before him, those people will bask in his gentle and humble heart. Because of who God is, his invitation means something. Right? This isn't a careless, half-baked invitation. This is who he is. Now, you might think, well, the cares of my life are, are too heavy for God. What does he say? Come to me. You might think God could never love me after all the things I've done. What does Jesus say? Come to me. You might think, where's God in the midst of this painful trial, this upheaval in life? He he says, come to me. You might think I'm bitter, I'm angry, I'm frustrated with God right now, and yet his invitation stands, 
come to me. You might think, if only I could get my life straightened out a little bit more, maybe then God would accept me. And yet he says, come to me. See, the Son of God humbled himself and came to us so that we could come to him. That, that's the irony of the cross. His humility, his lowliness is our hope. He startles us with his humility. He startles us with his compassion. So on Palm Sunday, the King of Glory rode into Jerusalem and ultimately to his death, as we know, not in glorious battle, seated on a, a war horse, but humble and gentle, seated on a donkey, on a foal, the colt of a donkey. Zechariah 9.9, Matthew 21.5. See, only by faith in the work of Jesus Christ at the cross where he died for all our sin and perniciousness, only by faith can we dismantle our predilection for self-righteous glory, right? And receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. See, the irony of the cross is that he died so that we might live. He died so that we might live. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we again thank you for this word that reminds us so clearly that you are a God of mercy, a God of compassion. We thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus, that as we read in Philippians 2, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but humbled himself and took on the very nature of a servant. Lord, we thank you. We can't thank you enough for the blessing of your yoke, this yoke of grace that you've put on us that lifts us up out of our sin, out of our suffering, out of our misery. Lord, help us to walk in that truth today and through this holy week as we anticipate celebration of the cross of Christ and his glorious resurrection. Would we walk in this truth, Lord? In Jesus' name, amen.